So uh, at Christmas, we get to talk about birth, which is cool. Um, it's, it's interesting that at the two biggest Christian holidays, Easter and Christmas, the focus is on birth. And at Christmas, it's on the birth of Jesus. And, and Easter, the focus is on new birth in Christ because of his resurrection. Um, and that is cause for celebration, if there's ever been cause for celebration. And normally, you know, in human history, worldwide, the birth of a child is cause for celebration. There are certainly circumstances where the birth of a child is not cause for celebration because of problems with the baby or the death of the mother in childbirth and those types of things. But in general, uh, we as cultures, as human cultures, we celebrate greatly when a baby is born. Uh, We're going to do that here in January. We're going to celebrate the birth of babies that we've had here. We're going to dedicate them to the Lord as a family together, and that's going to be a big day. And we always get excited about uh, baby dedications. But um, human cultures also find interesting ways to celebrate uh, babies. Uh, we, we, in this country, obviously, we, we have a lot of material goods. And so there are uh, different ways that we celebrate babies. Uh, in Pakistan, they celebrate the birth of babies by shaving the baby's head, uh, which is uh, an interesting little process. And they have, a, 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 I guess, for lack of a better term, a ritual that goes along with shaving the baby's head um, in, in that country. In Renaissance France, they would wash the baby in a bath of red roses, red wine, and oil uh, as soon as the baby was born. And that was to, to cleanse the baby and also to have sort of this ritual about lavishing uh, this celebration on the baby. In, uh, in Aboriginal uh, Australia and in some other Aboriginal uh, cultures like New Zealand, they actually smoke the baby, interestingly enough. <laughs> um, they, similar to the way the Hawaiians smoke meat, they dig a pit, they put uh, some kind of leaf or banana uh, leaf, that, that kind of uh, a foliage in the pit that's wet, and then they lay the baby in the pit uh, for just a short period of time. But they believe that the baby inhaling some amount of this smoke is good for the baby, um, but it's also basically just a ritual to celebrate uh, the baby's birth. Most of these rituals in even cultures today, but certainly in ancient cultures, most of these baby rituals didn't take place till 7 to 30 days after the baby is born. And that's because of the high infant mortality rate. So in a world, and especially in a culture where there's not uh, medical science uh, advanced to the extent that we've got it today, there's a real good chance that the, the babies weren't going to make it. Um, and even in American culture, uh, post-colonial England, uh, many families would have four, five, six children that did not live to adulthood. Um, and so these, these traditions were sort of delayed for several days uh, to celebrate the birth of the baby. One of the th- interesting things about Christmas as we look at manger scenes and those types of things, first of all, those manger scenes, I hope as you all know by now, uh, are not accurate in really in the least. Um, it was not a wooden stable. The wise men and shepherds were not there at the same time. The shepherds were probably not there on the night of the birth. The wise men were not there until the baby was much, much older in the two to three-year-old range. Um, so obviously we, we celebrate that and it's pretty decoration and all that. But just as we understand, th- there takes some time to make sure the baby's going to actually live uh, out of infancy before we really, and, and in many cultures, they didn't even give the baby a name until the time they had this ritual because they didn't want to name the baby and get too attached. It sounds terrible, but it's, that's the world. Uh, that was a world lit by fire. That's the way it works. Um, with modern technology and, 
and the ability to do ultrasounds and to know the gender of the baby before it's born, man, we've cranked up the celebration level. Like we've, we've kicked it up a whole new notch. Um, and I, and it, you guys that know me know I'm not a fad guy. I'm not a trend guy. I tend to buck trends. If, the, if everybody's doing it, I go do something else. Uh, but I don't think you can over-celebrate the birth of a baby. Um, and so the gender reveal parties uh, and all of this kind of stuff uh, I think are cool, and it's a ton of fun, and I think it's, it's, it's cool for parents to, to be able to do that, especially as, as hard as it is still, if you think about it, to have a baby and carry a baby to term and for everything to be healthy and to go well. It, it is cause for, for celebration. And so I'm, I'm a big fan of the gender reveal parties. I think it's fun. Um, and, and I love the commercials about the gender reveal parties. My favorite one, I don't know if you guys remember this commercial, but the South Carolina Education Lottery did a commercial about this, about needing to get away, or you feel like you need to get away. It was kind of a take on the Southwestern Airlines commercial. But they have these, these two ladies are standing at the gender reveal bar, and she says, oh, you really, you really don't know? No, no, the, the, the ultrasound results went straight to the bakery, and they baked the cake, and they brought the cake here, or whatever, and they're standing there talking, and this guy that's at the party walks up, and he's eating a piece of cake, and he's got blue stuff like all over his mouth, and, and he looks at him, and, they, and they're looking at him like, what? He goes, what? There's more in the kitchen. <laughs> He's like totally ruined the, <laughs> the gender reveal. Um, so, so Jewish celebrations at the time Jesus was born were, were pretty elaborate too. Um, Jewish culture, uh, especially in regard to what we read in the Old Testament and certainly what we read in, in Jewish codified law, they, they, they made a big deal, especially when a baby boy was born. Uh, because especially, again, even more so if it was the first son. So this, this is the first son born to Mary and Joseph. And so traditionally, they would have had a party. They would have invited their friends and their neighbors. The father or the grandfather would have uh, gotten some musicians uh, to come and, and maybe some folks to sing uh, at this celebration for the baby. And so when Jesus is born... In the circumstances he's born in, if he's born in Nazareth, where Mary and Joseph are from, uh, they would have had a party. And if they had the means, Joseph probably didn't, but if they had the means, uh, they would have had musicians and food and a huge celebration about the birth of this baby boy, this son who would carry the family name forward. Um, But we know the story here is different. So we're going to be in Luke 2 today, surprisingly. (laughs) Uh, it is Christmas time. We will be in, in Luke 2. Verses 1 through 7 kind of set this stage. Mary and Joseph, Mary is very pregnant. Uh, the census goes out from the Roman government that says you need to go to your hometown to be counted as a citizen of the Roman Empire so that we can tax you appropriately. Uh, so Mary and Joseph have to make the journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Uh, they, she did not ride a donkey. Um, they would not have had enough money to afford a donkey. And so she probably walked that entire distance, very pregnant, um, to, uh, to Bethlehem uh, with the help of her, her husband Joseph and maybe some other folks that were traveling with them. As you know, they arrive. Bethlehem is packed full of people because everybody is back there to be counted in the census. Again, Joseph is a carpenter. Mary is a teenager. They don't have any means. They don't have the ability to set themselves up for where they are. So they scrounge around and finally find a place where they can spend the night. It was probably in the springtime, so probably not as cold as you're led to believe, but it's still the night in a place that they're generally unfamiliar with. It's just because that's Joseph's place of origin. Um, And so they find this manger 
this stable, which isn't a wooden stable at all. Most likely it is a hovel carved out of a cave. Uh, and so it would have been carved into the mountainside. And even the manger could have very well been carved out of the rock, hollowed out, kind of scooped out of the rock. Uh, where, she, where the baby would have been laid. So here, here we have Mary and Joseph. They have found what's essentially a cave uh, where they feed sheep and other livestock, but mostly sheep. And Jesus is born in this cave. He's born a very healthy uh, baby boy. And they put him in the manger and they wrap him in the cloth that they can find just to keep him out of the cool night air and probably the cool dampness uh, of the cave. So this is the king of kings the Lord of Lords, the Son of God, born in a cave. Um, and we pick up the narrative then in verse 8. So let's, let's, let's read verses 8 through 12. So in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, don't miss the words. I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, Bethlehem, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Imagine being the public relations coordinator for the Lord to announce the birth of the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Any of you guys do PR in here? Anybody do public relations marketing? Yes, you do, Kim. Kim, this is a nightmare. This is a logistical nightmare. The biggest nightmare is who do I miss? A lot of these big announcements, the bigger problems are not with the announcement that goes out, but who didn't get the news before others, and who's going to be upset that they didn't get the news? So we're talking about religious leaders, dignitaries, kings and queens, presidents, prime ministers, politicians, the press, educators, the elite, all of the very important people need to get this announcement first before it goes to the little people like us. Okay, so if I'm God's PR director in human rationalization, those are all of the people I want to announce it to. I want to get it to Caesar. I need to get it to the governor of the region. Uh, it, this would eventually, at the time of Jesus' death, be Pontius Pilate. Uh, but I would get it to the governor. I would get it to the king, who is Herod uh, Agrippa. At that time, I would get it then to all of the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the temple. I would do all of this to announce that the Messiah, in fact, had been born. What's interesting is God had a PR person as well, his name or her name or its name is Gabriel, and it's an angel, and Gabriel is the PR director, and Gabriel gets very different instructions from God on how to announce the birth of his son. And what's cool about this to me, uh, and hopefully to you as you read the Christmas story, maybe in a different light this year, is that we see God's character in who he chooses to honor with the news of his son and who he chooses to ignore. So he chooses to honor shepherds in Luke 2, 8 through 12. Obviously, he's already told Joseph and Mary, and he is told by proxy Mary's cousin Elizabeth uh, and her husband Zechariah. Um, 
But that's all he's really announced the baby to. Joseph, no doubt, has probably shared it with his family just so he can explain why he's marrying a girl who's pregnant and they haven't been married yet. Um, So he's probably shared it at least with some people in his family that believe and trust in the Lord. But there's a very small amount of people who even know that there's a possibility that Mary is going to give birth to the Son of God. And so this, the first official announcement to folks outside of that family are shepherds. Okay. And we think of shepherds in our culture, I think, very favorably, mostly because of bedtime stories when we're growing up, and we think of shepherds very favorably because we've probably read the Bible, been exposed to the Bible, and so the Bible talks about shepherds favorably. But guys, shepherds, there weren't many people in this culture, in Jewish culture, that were less honorable than shepherds. Maybe lepers, maybe Samaritans. Okay, lepers have a communicable disease uh, and are completely, perpetually unclean. And Samaritans are mixed blood between Jews and Gentiles, and they live in a region close by, and they are hated by the Jews. Those two groups may have been less honorable than the shepherds, but, but probably not. According to the Mishnah, which is codified Jewish ceremonial law. So this is extra biblical law. This isn't found in uh, Genesis uh, and the first five books of the Bible. This is extra biblical law, but it's codified. It's written down in the law. Shepherds were under a perpetual religious ban. They could not participate in temple worship, and they were also considered to be perpetually unclean. Why? Well, they couldn't keep all the regulations of the scribes and the Pharisees. For for first things, they, they worked on the Sabbath. Sheep don't take the Sabbath off. They get lost. They get hungry. They have baby sheep. They do all of the things that sheep do, and they do that on Saturday just like they do every day of the week. So shepherds are working on every Sabbath and therefore perpetually unclean according to the Mishnah. They also couldn't wash their hands at certain times when they needed to wash their hands. They're out in the hillsides. They're sleeping in the hills. They're eating in the hills. They are touching dead things. They are touching blood. You can't, these are all things in the Mishnah that make you unclean for temple worship. These are things shepherds are doing every day of their lives all day long. They had to deliver baby lambs. They had to fight predators. They're unclean. They're prohibited not only just from worshiping in the temple, but from even taking tabernacle worship. They could not worship with others. And because of this, they were generally untrained in what God's word says. They weren't welcome there, and therefore, unless they took initiative on their own or had someone in their family that was willing to teach them outside of the temple, they would not have known necessarily what God's word said. They were religious outcasts. Because they were religious outcasts and because of the way this culture is shaped, and me being a lawyer, this is fascinating to me, they also were never allowed to testify in a court of law. So if something happened to you and the only witness you had to what happened was a shepherd, you're in real trouble. Well, I got a witness, but he says he ain't going to talk. Well, he's a shepherd, so they're not going to let him come in and swear. Why? Because he's unclean, and he cannot take an oath to the Lord because he's unclean before the Lord, and therefore, you're out of luck. You can't testify. They were considered to be unreliable witnesses. So the Lord of lords, Yahweh, the creator, chooses to announce the birth of his son to men who are unreliable witnesses and perpetually unclean to the religious. Let that sink in a minute. 
This is crazy. You see what God's doing here? He's flipping the whole thing on its ear right at the beginning. We see Jesus 30-something years later flipping things on its ear. But God's doing it at his birth. He's setting the stage for who Jesus will be and who he is and what the message is and what the gospel is. He's doing that right now when Jesus is born. And not only does he give the shepherds the task or he gives them the news, he gives them the task of telling everybody. Okay, so you're going to send the most unreliable witnesses in the kingdom to, te- to be your testif- testimony. All right, cool. But isn't he doing that today? He's doing that today. Jesus is the good shepherd. So let's take the irony a step further. Jesus refers to himself in John 10, 11 as the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I am the most unclean person you can imagine. I'm the one that's good. That's me. Okay? Peter, in 1 Peter 5, 4, calls him our chief shepherd. So not only is he the good shepherd, he's the head shepherd. He's the one in charge. He's the one leading the flock. He's the one we all submit to his authority. In Hebrews 13, 20, Jesus is called the great shepherd, further amplifying this title of shepherd. In Ephesians 4, 11, the title is given to church elders. People who are charged with leading God's church on earth are given the title shepherds. You know where the word pastor comes from? It comes from a root word, pastor, which means pasture. That's where we get our word pastor from. So when you're literally saying this guy's my pastor, you're saying he's my shepherd. It is a pastoral term. Everything that comes out of what church leadership looks like in the New Testament comes out of shepherd leadership, servant leadership. We'll talk about that at great length in January as we talk about how God has set his church up to be led and how he's set it up to have an impact in the world. If this wasn't enough, there's even more. These are Bethlehem shepherds. Luke 2 says they were in that same region, in that same part of the world, shepherds, out in the fields taking care of their flocks. Bethlehem is about six miles south of Jerusalem. It's about a five-minute car ride uh, today. By foot, it would have been a lot longer, a couple of days. Um, But it's six miles south of Jerusalem. In the Mishnah, which we talked about earlier, there is a rule that says that any animal found between Jerusalem and And a small village close by during Passover is fair game for sacrifice and for feast at Passover. Anybody want to guess what the small village was that's named in the Mishnah? It's Bethlehem. These shepherds are raising animals that will be sacrificed for the remission of sin in the temple during Passover. Josephus, who's the Jewish historian, tells us that during Jesus' lifetime, a quarter of a million to 350,000 sheep will be sacrificed in the temple for Passover. They will be killed and sacrificed and then eaten as part of the Passover feast in Jerusalem. That's the sheep that these shepherds are raising. 
sheep that will be sacrificed for the forgiveness of sins. So the birth of the Lamb of God, Jesus, the all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins is announced first to common men, religious outcasts who are raising sheep to be sacrificed in order to buy God's mercy for just a little bit longer. Just a little bit longer. I mean, how marvelous the unbridled grace of God in the Christmas story. Men who are perfectly acquainted with what these sheep are for and what they will do, they are born to die. And then God says, you know what? I've given you one more, and he's born to die too. Let's look at the rest of the text. Luke two thirteen through 16. Suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then, straight there, and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And so they came in a hurry, and they found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in a manger. So, an angel appears, a single angel appears, tells the shepherds what's going on, and then he's surrounded by a multitude of angels sharing the same story and glorifying God. Prior to this account, there has been no recorded appearance of an angel for nearly 500 years. If you read the Old Testament, the Old Testament is full of angels. Angels appear, they appear in Groups, they appear individually, they appear to bring God's messages, they appear to bring God's warnings, they appear to minister to God's uh, prophets, they appear to minister to God's kings. They're all over the Old Testament. And then dead silence. When you look at biblical history, especially when you do a biblical survey, you'll see that there is a 400 to 500 year period where God gives no spiritual inspiration to any man or woman and no angels appear. You imagine that? 500 years of silence from God? Nothing. And then suddenly, here the angels are again. They appear to Zechariah and tell him, hey, your wife's going to have a baby. I know she's getting up in years, but she's going to have a baby. And y'all, I know y'all haven't been able to have a baby. Zechariah laughs. God says, oh, you think that's funny? Well, then you don't get to talk until the baby's born. Okay, so Zechariah goes dumb by the hand of God until his baby is born. His baby his wife is Elizabeth. She is Mary's cousin. The baby that will, born is, will be born is John the baptizer. He is the one who paves the way for Jesus, preaching that the kingdom is at hand. So that's angel number one. Angel number two comes to Mary and says, hey, guess what? You're pregnant. And it's God's. God, through the Holy Spirit, has made you pregnant with child, and it will be the Son of God. I know this is a shock, but you will give birth to the Messiah. And then he goes and tells Joseph, bigger shock, uh, the girl that you're engaged to is pregnant. Uh, don't worry, God did it. Okay, yeah, that makes it better. <laughs> Whew. Oh, okay, good, good. Uh, I, I'm going to be the stepfather of the Son of God. All right, sweet, that's much better. Um, settles Joseph down, and so here the angels are again, appearing to the shepherds, angels Angels everywhere. How many angels? Multitude? How many is a multitude? We don't know. 
Uh, it's interesting, I was looking up, you know, just some, some, I guess, estimates, rough calculations of angels and, and looking at Revelation and in some of the prophetic books of the Bible. If you look at Daniel 7.10 and you do the math, Daniel reports seeing 100 million angels worshiping around the throne of God. All right. 100 million angels dedicated only to standing around God's throne, magnifying him. So was there 100 million out on this hillside in Bethlehem? Man, I don't know, but I mean, pick another number. Any number in that range is just a number. That's a whole bunch of angels singing to these men on the hillside. God invited some musicians to celebrate the birth of his son. Now, you're going to say, Brian, whoa, wait a minute. Now, you threw that up on the screen, and I'm looking here at my Bible. It says the angels were saying. They were saying, not singing. Am I about to ruin a bunch of Christmas songs? For those that know me, that would be par for the course for me on December 17th to tell you, oh, wait a minute, the angels weren't really singing. They were saying. The original Greek word for saying is the verb aneo. Aneo. It is the counterpart. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, which is called the Septuagint. The Greek translation of this word is the counterpart for the Hebrew verb hallel where we get the word hallelujah, all right? Hallelujah is also a Hebrew word. So when you say hallelujah, you are speaking Hebrew. It is not English. (laughs) And it comes from the root hallel, which means to praise through singing. Notice that in verse 14 in your Bible, how many of you in your Bible, raise your hand if the Bible that you have changes the indentation for verse 14 in Luke chapter 2? so that it's more indented or it's more compact, okay? The, the reason they do that in here and in the Psalms and Proverbs is they're indicating these are lyrics, all right? So this is poetry, and in this case, Shakespeare would be proud. It's pastoral poetry. It is poetry sung about and to shepherds. Job chapter 38 tells us that angels sang at the dawn of creation as God the Son spoke the universe into existence, So God the Son is creating and speaks the universe into existence. And here they're singing again as he steps down from heaven's throne and into our existence, into the very world he created. Man. Wait a minute. Here's another wait a minute, Brian. Did you just say that the sweet little baby Jesus lying in his little technicolor manger created the world. Did you say that? Yeah. Yeah, I said it. That's blasphemy in a lot of places. Uh, It's still blasphemy in Jewish culture. Verse 11, he says, for today in the city of David, there has been born for you, for you, a Savior, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Um, This is in so many songs. And so many pieces of poetry related to Christmas and its own placards. My, Jenny and I have this uh, on a, basically a decoration that we created that hangs over our mantle at Christmas time. It's Luke 2, 11. There's been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The angel, the angels are telling the shepherds that this baby has three titles. Right. Notice they don't say his name's Jesus. Jesus is his name. Okay? That's... Jesus is just as common as David or Michael. There are Jesuses all over Jerusalem. 
Okay, there are Josephs and Jesuses. Joseph and Jesus are somewhat interchangeable in Hebrew, Aramaic. Jesus is kind of the Aramaic variant of the Hebrew Joseph. But that name to the angels, not terribly important. That's his given name. What they're concerned with is his titles. Savior. This is a politically charged title. Guess who carried the title of Savior in this world? Caesar. Caesar is the Soter. Caesar is the Savior of the world. You can see it in inscriptions all over the Roman Empire. And even today in Roman art, you will see that Caesar is the Soter, the Savior. The Gentiles would have perked up when they heard this title. When they heard this baby referred to as the Savior. It is subversive to Rome. It is subversive to the Caesar and is subversive to the government at hand. And yet the angels proclaim that the baby is the Savior. And then they say he's the Christ. So he's the Savior, number one. That's hard enough. Now he's the Christ. In Greek, the Christos. In Hebrew, the Messiah, the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one of God. Only the promised one of God can claim this title. There is no one else who can stand in these shoes. There are not little promised ones running around. There are not individual promised ones. There are not subsets of promised ones. There is the promised one, and he is the Messiah. This would have been more inflammatory to the Jews than calling him the Savior would have been to the Gentiles. This is blasphemy if he's not. If he's not God, if he's not the Messiah, to call him such is blasphemy. And yet the angels are blaring it out on the hillsides that the baby born in a manger is the Christ. And then he says, to top it all off, he's the Lord. Kyrios is the Greek word here. It is the Greek counterpart for a Hebrew word that starts with a Y in our language. Yahweh. He is Yahweh. Kyrios, the Lord. This word is used more than 6,000 times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament where Hebrews would use the word Yahweh, which we translate Jehovah. Hebrews would not have said the word out loud except for one time a year. The high priest of the temple would go into the Holy of Holies with a single candle and a rope tied around his ankle. In case he died in there, they could drag him out. And he would whisper the name of Yahweh. The baby born in the manger is the Lord. Christianity, biblical Christianity, is the only religion that makes that claim. The true gospel demands all three of these titles. If there is a religious teaching that doesn't ascribe all three titles in Luke 2 to Jesus, it is not the gospel. I don't want to be harsh. I do want to be truthful with all the grace that I can muster. If a religion says he's a great teacher, if a religion says he is a son of God, if a religion says he is a brother of angels, if a religion says he is a brother of Lucifer, if a religion says that he is one of the gods, it is not the gospel, no matter what the cover of the magazine says. 
no matter what the cover of the book says, no matter what the individual tells you. The angels who know him have seen him, have worshipped him in person for eternity past. Call him Christ, Savior, Lord. Savior of the world, the promised one of God, the God, the only one lying in a manger. Now, we can get really wrapped up in the theology of this, and I don't want to do that this morning. I do want it to land, though. The coolest thing about 11, verse 11, is not necessarily the discussion of who Jesus is, although it's extremely important. There's a, there's a phrase in verse 11 that's really important. It says, he was born for you. Under you unto you is born this day. For you is born this day in the city of David, the Savior. Romans 10.9 says that in order to be reconciled to God, in order for me to tear down the veil that separates me from God, this large chasm that I cannot cross where God is on the other side and my sin is in the middle and I'm over here. The only thing that can span that distance is Christ. And I have to call him Lord. Romans 10.9, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Guess what Greek word that is? Kurios. Yahweh, God. Confess my sins and call Jesus Lord. Have you called him Lord? Or are you like Ricky Bobby? You like to keep him in the manger. I like him over there in the manger with his little baby Einstein videos. We do. We like him in the manger. He's unimposing in the manger. He doesn't require a lot of me in the manger. He's cute. Oh, his little curly hair. It's adorable in the manger over there. He is God who put himself on a cross and rose again for you. And he says, all you have to do to receive me, to receive this gift, to lay your sin down, to be controlled by the king of the universe is to confess that you can't do it on your own and call me Lord. If you've called him Lord, are you doing what the shepherds did? Not only when the angels tell them the story, not only did they not delay, the words that are used there, they went in a hurry, they went straight away, they went directly, they went as fast as they could go. All of those words indicate great haste. They went at great speed. They drove really fast. They exceeded the speed limit, Gil, greatly as they headed to the manger to get there as fast as they could. If you have called him Lord and you understand that he is the Christ and the Savior and the God, who have you told? And when? And why not? Yeah, what's What's funny, one of my favorite songs growing up, I grew up in Southern Church, Baptist Church, Southern Gospel, guitars and twangy and four-part, five-part harmonies, David. 
That's what I grew up with. And all of these great songs that come back to your mind and come back to your mind and come back to your mind, there's a song that said he could have called 10,000 angels when he was on the cross. He could have called heaven's entire army to take him down. He didn't have to stay there. What's crazy is that God could call angels right now to appear in the skies and tell the world that Jesus is the Christ and the Savior and the Lord. But he doesn't. Instead, he chose to use outcasts, broken people who are not welcome in the world to tell. And that's me and you. Truthfully, 2017, if a bunch of angels appeared in the sky singing stuff, that we'd be like, that's a terrific special effects. This is, this is really, well, really well done. It's awesome. Uh, this is like a hologram or something. What is this? David, we've got to get some of this stuff for, for what we do. That's pretty expensive, though, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Might have been the same case in those days and just in different ways. But God said, I've given you the Christ. You've accepted him. He lives in you. Can you go tell somebody? Just one person, maybe? Oh, man, I love Christmas. I love this story. Let this sink in. Go back and read this this week as you pray and ask the Lord to prepare you for next week and Christmas and everything that it means. I think it'll change you. Let's pray.